So to be in relationship is to be vulnerable. If you plan on connecting your life with other people, sharing yourself in any way, shape, or form, you should plan on getting hurt. It's a risk that we all take. So a few years ago, I read a book by a guy named Frederick Buckner. He wrote this uh, novel, historic novel, though, on uh, this figure named Godric. It's the story of a medieval merchant turned saint, Godric of Fengchal or something like that. And it's, um, it's a lot more interesting than it sounds. Here's a picture of the actual character, Godric, being tempted by a devil or something like that. Medieval saint. Um, he's a fascinating character and he's near the end of his life and he's reflecting on his life and all the wounds that he's inflicted on others and all the wounds that they've inflicted on him. And as he sits back and looks at his life, he says this quote that, well, it's just a curious, curious statement. He says this, what's friendship when all is said and done, but the giving and taking of wounds? Is that what friendship is? And yet, I look at this and I think, maybe, maybe it is. Like, if you consider your own life, do you have more scars, like physical, spiritual, emotional scars in your life from those who are close to you, from friends, from family, or from your enemies? Like, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of us um, have been most hurt by those we're closest to, those we most love. Because being in relationship is inherently risky. It is to be vulnerable. And so it's not coincidental when you, when you see in, in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, the very first thing after they take a bite from the forbidden fruit, what's the very first thing that happens? They realize they have to cover themselves up. I have to hide from you. Like I have to take fig leaves and, and sow them, not just to hide from God, but to hide from you. Because the moment that that happens, they realize you can hurt me. I'm vulnerable. Even though you're the person I'm supposed to give my whole self to and love fully, even though you're my spouse, you could hurt me. And ever since then, well, the story's just rolled on and on. This is not just a story. This is the human story. This is our story. To be in relationship is to be vulnerable. Intentionally or unintentionally, we will always be wounding others and others will always be wounding us. Call them family, lover, friend, neighbor, enemy. It doesn't matter. If you are in relationship, you will be wounding and wounded. So then the question, if that is essential, like that's from the first human story on, if if that's the problem, then the question is, is what will I do when someone hurts me? Not if someone hurts me, but when someone hurts me. And we find from that very basic early on human story of Genesis chapter 3 that that as soon as we answer that question, how we answer that question, what will I do when someone hurts me, how we answer that question is going to form us, our relationships, our community, our world, our souls. And we find Genesis 4 that the most natural, or at least the most ancient answer to that question, what will I do when someone hurts me, is I will hurt you back. The answer is revenge. Again, this is baked into the very fabric of the human story that Adam and Eve, they eat of the tree, they realize they're sinful, they hide from one another, and then they have a son, right? A son named Cain, who you might remember his name 
loosely translated means God has brought forth or God's gift that he's God's gift to humanity yes we have a son named Cain he's God's gift to humanity he's a somebody and then they have the second son and his name is Abel which loosely translates like (laughs) like we're not sure if he means just worthless or frustrated but either way you don't want to be called that (laughs) he's a nobody what happens? They both go offer their sacrifices to God, and Abel offers a better sacrifice. And God looks at Abel, this nobody, and says, you're a somebody. And he looks at Cain, and he says, I do not accept your sacrifice. It's not the right sacrifice. It's not the right heart. And Cain, Cain sees that God has now favored Abel, that nobody just took his place. Nobody is now claiming to be a somebody. So so. Cain now feels disenfranchised and he is deeply wounded by his brother who now has removed his place. So what does he do? He deeply wounds his brother. In fact, he wounds him so bad that Abel dies. And we watch this conversation unfold. God comes to Cain. God says, this won't be okay in my family. You no longer have a part of my family You are now kicked out. You must be a restless wanderer. You must be outside of my family from now on. And then what does Cain worry about, though? What's his big, big concern in that conversation? He says, but whoever finds me is going to kill me. See, Cain can only think, he can only think, this is the way I think. Like, if if someone takes my place, I have to kill them. And now everyone's going to think to me that, that, that bitterness, that animosity, that hatred, that revenge, that's the only possible response to what he's done. So Cain assumes that the only possible response to what he did is going to be revenge. But God says, Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, But God, the Lord said to him, Not so, Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. God says, you don't have to worry about this. I'm going to be the one who, who, who avenges you. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. If anyone comes after you, leave the justice to me. And he says seven times. Seven times. That doesn't mean like on the eighth time you're on your own. This is like a Hebrew way of saying complete justice is in my hands. You can trust me, Cain. You can trust me. I'm going to break this cycle if you just trust me. But we get every suspicion that Cain does not trust God to avenge his wounds. In fact, if you read on the story, he has a son and a son has a son and a son has a son. And as as it goes along, you get the sense that the norm within that family is revenge. That if somebody hurts you, what do you do if someone hurts you? You hurt them worse. And it becomes a generational sin and it grows. It escalates until we see seven generations... Through the line of Cain, seven generations later, his line comes to completion. And we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, about this man named Lamech, the seventh son of Cain. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. Sometimes we all speak to our wives like that, right? Um, yes, he's the first polygamist. That says something. And he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And you just know someone is bragging 
when they speak about themselves in the third person. So what, what do I do? What, in my family, what do we do if someone hurts me? This is what Lamech does. You touch me, I break your arm. You try and take my place, I remove you. If Cain will kill you because a nobody tried to become a somebody in his presence, what do you think I will do? He says, if it's seven times, I'm saying 77 times. An unimaginable, incalculable amount of vengeance. A vengeance you can't even fathom. A hatred that is unstoppable. A man who does not know the words, I forgive you. That's what Lamech says. And thus, from the beginning of the human story, we begin to paint this picture. An escalation of resentment, bitterness, hatred, hostility, anger, fear, wounds for wounds, unforgiveness. That the human story, from the beginning, is a story of unforgiveness. Now, while we might, we might pull back from this and say, yeah, but that was like an ancient world where people actually like, took each other out into the field and, like, bashed each other's head with a stone. Like, you know, when my coworker makes me look bad in a meeting, I've never taken him out to a field and bashed his head in with a stone, right? So we'd say we might not be so physically um, or violently revengeful. And yet, and yet, and yet, I would ask you to consider, um, let's not be fooled by our shiny, happy suburbia. It's still our story. We, in the West, are still very much caught up in the story. And let me just point out a couple of simple examples. It is still in the stories we tell. Like, if you look at our movies, do you know how many movies are basically about the arc of revenge, getting revenge? Our great epics, the greatest movies, right, are about revenge. I mean, he was in uh, The English Come In. And they kill his young, beautiful bride who he married in secret. Now the Scottish rebel will stop at nothing until he destroys them. Braveheart. This evil son of a good emperor murders his father and then orders the execution of all of his father's supporters. But then one heroic general survives. He's a slave and then becomes this great gladiator and sets his life to destroy the usurper gladiator. Maybe you've heard this story. A boy's father was senselessly killed by a six-fingered man. (laughs) So the boy devoted the rest of his life to training and swordsmanship so that someday he could look at his father's murder and say, My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. All the epic stories have this in it. And I mean, you just change a few of the details there and you see this 70s times 7 type of revenge in our movies everywhere, 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 everywhere. Revenge is still our story. And why do they keep making these movies over and over again? Because they sell. And why do they sell? Because they stir something deep in us. There's something deep in us. There's a Lamech deep in us that says, yes, that's what I want. If someone wrongs me, I want to destroy them. I want to watch them suffer. I want justice, but not just justice. I want to see them suffer 70 times 7 what I suffered. It's in the songs we sing. Demi Lovato is sorry. Not sorry. 
Alanis Morissette says, um, there's some things you all don't know. Taylor Swift's got bad blood. CeeLo Green's like, forget you. <laughs> Justin Timberlake, um, you can cry me a river. Even, even, even sweet, sweet Christian Carrie Underwood. Like, miss, Jesus take the wheel. She's like sweet and kind and miss, Jesus take the wheel. And then she finds her boyfriend's cheating and she's like, I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped up four wheel. I mean, she's like taking a Louisville slugger to both headlights. Like, it is this grand fantasy of revenge that's super popular. We all want to sing along. Why? Because it feels so good. And that's the Lamex song. Carrie Underwood, Lamech. What will I do if they hurt me by all outward appearances? It appears that we just don't put up with revenge, that we revel in it. We tell our epic stories about it. We sing about it. We fantasize about it. We wish we were Lamech. So since the time of Lamech, this has been the human story, and yet since the time of Lamech, Anyone who just pauses for even a second knows this is not the way. Like we know it doesn't work. Like wounding for wounds, it doesn't truly satisfy. It doesn't solve anything. It makes the world a worse place. But then we have to be honest with ourselves. That all sounds fine and good. Like, yes, we need to forgive. We need to give things up until, until we start telling our own stories, until we tap into our own wounds. Until we get specific. So for me, it goes back to when I was in middle school. My grandfather was dying in the hospital. And the story came out about what he had done to my mother growing up. And I felt a hatred I had never felt before. And I felt something like I relished the idea of him suffering and dying. And I actually fantasized about him dying and burning in hell. And something terrible surged in me. Maybe I'm not that different than Lamech. And I think if you tap into your own wounds, maybe you're not either. So what will I do when they hurt me? Lamech is not the answer. Cain is not the answer. It's clearly not the answer. But how do we break the cycle? Like what can we possibly do to overcome this? And I mean this in the, the literal sense. This primal fear within us. That others are going to hurt me. That I'm vulnerable. Like what are we going to do with that? And that brings us to Jesus. So Jesus picks up this exact story, this story, this human story that from the beginning, this escalation of vengeance and violence, of hatred, of bitterness, of resentment that we brew within ourselves, that we chew upon, that we ruminate over, this, this thing that destroys not only us and our souls, but destroys our relationships and our society and our relationship with God and our health and he picks this up in Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, we'll, we'll, we're going to go through 21 through, through the end of the chapter there. But in verse 15 first, just to show you where we're at, he says, If a brother or sister sins, here's the context. If someone hurts you, if someone wounds you, what are you supposed to do? What are you going to do if somebody hurts you? And that whole teaching right there from 15 all the way up to 20 is about 
reconciliation. I'll tell you what you do. You're going to do everything possible to right that relationship with them. First, you're going to go to them personally. You're going to plead with them if they sin. And if that doesn't work, then you bring someone else along. And you're going to, you're going to plead with them then. And if that doesn't work, then finally you, you're going to bring them in front of the entire church. And if that doesn't work, only after you've tried every possible thing you can do to reconcile with them, only then, only then. Would you possibly break off your relationship with them? And then the problem, the, the problem that sits here in the minds of anyone who reads that passage thoughtfully is, yeah, but what if I don't want to reconcile with them? Like, how many times am I supposed to just put up with this if they keep hurting me and hurting me? Like, what if I don't want to do this? What if I don't want to forgive them? What if I don't want to be in relationship with them? And Peter, as is often the case, asked the question we're all thinking, so Matthew chapter 28, or eight, chapter 18, verse 21, Peter then says, Then Peter came to Jesus after he hears this lesson about reconciliation, and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Like, how many times do I have to put up with this? How many times do I have to jump through this hoop? And he's super generous here. He says, up to seven times? And remember, Hebrew, Hebrew. We're not just talking like at the eighth time you're, you're host. He's saying that the fullness, the completion, like, like, do I have to be totally forgiving? And this is super generous. If you, if you read this in context, you know that there's an ancient Jewish tradition at the time that if a sin was premeditated, you should only forgive it up to three times, and then they were done. So he goes way beyond that. He's like, should I fully forgive them? Like, should I do this seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or seven times seven these are the very words of Lamech and he inverts them Jesus says the only thing great enough the only thing powerful enough to overcome the hatred the hurt the fear the resentment the victimhood the vengeance within the human heart is forgiveness. And we're not talking like full forgiveness. We're not talking about, we're not even talking about um, as forgiving as humanly possible. That's not enough, he says. You need a forgiveness that's not humanly possible. You need a forgiveness that is beyond description, beyond comprehension, that is unimaginable, incalculable. You need a forgiveness that doesn't make sense to this world. We need God's forgiveness. 77 times forgiveness. And then he's going to tell this story to unpack this for us. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king, like a king. Now, I just want to pause right here and point something out. Um, A couple weeks ago, my daughter and I were working on her homework. She's in fourth grade, and this was a fourth grade poetry assignment. And so in it, she had to use multiple figures of speech, and then she had to label them. Um, Why do I mention this? Because if Jesus wasn't busy being savior of the world, he would have been an excellent fourth grade poetry teacher. Like if you, you, this man loves figurative language. Like his M.O. is to talk about like telephone poles and and building us on sand and and putting manure around a tree and camels going through through the needle. Which is to say, if he sit and come to this story, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. If we try and read this in a wooden literal sense, we're all going to be like, huh? So there's a orthodox teacher, leader, modern day, recent times, 
I'm not even sure if I can pr- pronounce his name, Greek, Porphyrus Kavoslavia. But he's got this great quote. I, I read this the other day. I was looking through, yeah, you know, when you sit around and read through your Orthodox authors, as you all do. Um, and I was reading through it, and I uh, came across this quote. He says, whoever wants to be a Christian must first become a poet. Now, that, let's, let's, uh, let's clarify this, because I know in this room that sounds weird, Right? Like, he's not saying you need to become artsy. He's not saying you need to become weird or loose with meaning. He's not saying you need to read poetry. He's saying you need to become a poet. And his point being this, the analytical, propositional language. Like, if you read Jesus like a list of facts or like a Wikipedia article, you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand him. That can only take you so far. So um, let's put this in a context we understand. Like, when you fall in love... Um, you don't describe it this way. You don't say, you know, when I'm around you, you make me experience elevated dopamine levels. You spike my central neo-epiephrine, norepiephrine, did you know norepiephrine system, limiting my ability to recall negative emotions and focus my thoughts on other subjects. Like, you don't sit there and describe your love that way, do you? Now, when you fall in love, what do you say? You say, I can't feel my face when I'm with you. But I love it. Like you read Pablo Neruda. Like you, you read Shakespeare. You say, Quoth. Why? Because you need figurative language to possibly point to what's happening inside and, and between you. It's not enough to describe it analytically and propositionally. Like words fail to, to comprehend or contain the experience of love. And he's saying, that's what God's like. Like, it's truth. It's an experience. It's a way. It's a mystery that words cannot contain. You understand? God can't be contained in words. A relationship with him can't be contained in words. Therefore, if we want to be a Christian, we have to first be a poet. We have to speak in in language that's figurative. We We have to find things to point to the mystery that is God. So Jesus does this for us. He models this. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, it can't be described in a literal, factual, analytical proposition here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So my fourth grade poetry skills tell me this is a simile, which is comparing two unlike things to make a vivid point about the ways in which they are like. So it's like a king settling accounts, not like a king in every single way, It's obviously unlike things. So the kingdom of heaven is not like this king in every way. This king is probably a godless king we see from the story. But Jesus is using figurative words to point us to something that words cannot contain. Make sense? As he, the king, began the settlement... A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Again, this is figurative. This is intentionally absurd... Intentionally absurd here. So how do we know this? So in Koine Greek, um, the word, the, the, the largest nu- uh, word for a number in Koine Greek, which this was written in, is the number 10,000. So this is the largest number they have. He says he owes him 10,000 talents. That, for us, this would be something like saying he owed him a Google dollars. Do you know what that is? One with 100 zeros behind it. 
Like, it's so big, it's absurd. But you might be saying, yeah, but a Google one, 10,000, like, that's totally not even comparable. Like, couldn't it be possible that someone actually owed the king 10,000 talents? And the answer is no. Archaeologically, um, we, we know from that time, if you, there are these records from Galilee and Perea, which is down to the right. This is in ancient Palestine during that time. Those regions, the duty or the uh, tariff that they paid to Caesar for the entire year, all the people in those regions was about 200 talents. So the uh, scholar Craig Keener explains 10,000, that number is utterly absurd on purpose. It's hyperbolic. He explains, the man, this man owes the king more money than existed in circulation in the whole country at the time. That's what 10,000. So when we say he, he had a settlement and a man brought, uh, who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, like that's, that's like going back to 1969 and in front of the UN demanding $100 million. Like, that's ridiculous. They would laugh you out. You know why? Because $100 billion did not exist in 1969. The man owes the king an unimaginable, incalculable sum. It's more money than existed in the whole world at the time. Verse 25. Since he was not able to pay, you think? (laughs) The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, Now, the man... Is this fair? Does the man get what he deserves here? The answer is certainly. Certainly he does. The man owed him so much that to lose everything he had, that makes sense. The follow-up question is, but does this, does selling the man, his wife, his children, and everything he has, does that satisfy justice? Does that truly pay back the debt? And the answer is certainly not. I mean, the best you could hope for selling the man, his wife, his kids, and everything they owned is a couple of talents total. So the king stands to lose, even though justice is technically being served here, he stands to lose something like 9,998 talents out of 10,000. At this, the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Of course, that's a ridiculous promise. There's just no way you could ever pay it back, ever. But the king, the king sees him begging, realizes that this man is utterly helpless to save himself. He can never pay back this debt, and he has pity on him. It reads, the servant's master, the king, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who, who owed him a hundred silver coins. It's like a hundred bucks. So he grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This is like deja vu, right? His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt that he demands justice. He demands that he's going to get that $100 back. He demands, this is what you owe me. This is what you will pay me. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? So let's... um. 
in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. So let's back up. This is historically, Greco-Roman rulers did this type of thing. If you couldn't pay your debt, they would put you in prison, and sometimes they would torture you to encourage your friends and family to pay back the debt quicker. Um, Let's just think on this real quick, though. This means that the amount that this man owed was an impossible debt. This would be like owing more than the national debt. There's no way anyone can ever pay it back by themselves. This man stands to be tortured forever. Jesus summarizes everything with this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you, each of you, unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. So, um, let's not overplay this story. It's a story. It's figurative. The kingdom of heaven is like this, but not in every way. God is not like that king in every way. But let's, um, let's talk about this torture thing, because that seems to be a big deal here. Um, is Jesus saying that if you don't forgive others, God will hand you over to be tortured in hell? Possibly. Is Jesus saying that if you don't forgive others, God will hand you over to be tortured by your, un, your own unforgiveness? Possibly. Both seem to be somewhere in the range there, huh? Unforgiveness is torture. It pulls us into an endless cycle of hatred, resentment, nurturing old wounds, victimhood, wishing evil on brothers, seeking revenge, that it destroys us from the inside out. It destroys our relationships. It destroys our health. It causes things like heart disease, sleeplessness, anxiety, depression, phobias. It ravages us physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. And as the saying goes, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. But it's also safe to say that if the entire direction of your life is formed by hatred, resentment, bitterness, if the entire direction of your life is about nurturing old wounds, about victimhood, about wanting to seek revenge, about following the way of Lamech, then you probably aren't going to end up at the end of that journey, that life journey, in a place of forgiveness and grace you're probably not going to end up in the kingdom of heaven. But this, to me, seems to be about a lot more than torture. So let's, let's back out for a second. When we face this most basic human question that we started out with, like, what will I do when somebody hurts me? What will I do when somebody hurts me? Jesus is saying that the only thing great enough powerful enough to overcome the hatred, the hurt, the fear, the resentment, the vengeance within our own hearts is an unimaginable, unfathomable, incalculable forgiveness. That we need a forgiveness that is not humanly possible. A forgiveness that's so great it's beyond description, beyond comprehension. It's like saying 10,000 talents. That we need God's forgiveness. This passage is really, really clear that 
Um, there's about a million things we could tease out of it, but I want you to see this. The source, the root, the basis of our ability to forgive other people starts with our ability to receive God's forgiveness. Like the extent to which we've experienced God's forgiveness will be the extent to which we can forgive other people from the heart. That our forgiveness should not be dependent on our inner strength or on their worthiness. That it should be entirely dependent on our experience of God's forgiveness, of God's grace. That only when we recognize what God has done for us, that only when we revel in what God has done for us, when, only when we experience His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, that He's poured out over us, only then can we overcome the need to demand justice for ourselves. The problem of the servant who was forgiven is that he didn't really understand. He really didn't comprehend. He really didn't live in the grace that was given to him. Because if he did, he would have showed it to someone else. He didn't really experience the 77-fold grace of God. So, in the Bible, forgiveness, like love, does not begin with us, but it begins with God. So, in 1 John, we read that we love because he first loved us. And the same could be said from this passage. We forgive because he first forgave us. And the thing that makes this so impossibly hard, though, is Jesus does a very Jesus thing here. If you notice, um, those final three words make this really, really tough. He says, uh, unless you forgive your brother and sister from your that for Jesus, it's not enough that we, would, um, uh, that we would have behavior modification. He doesn't just call us to not act on feelings of bitterness, resentment, revenge. He doesn't just call us to, um, to stop doing revengeful things. He says um, we need to have a forgiving heart. That we need to be transformed from the inside out. That we need to replace the revenge with love. And how do you change your heart? Have you thought about this? Have you guys seen the, uh, the recent TV show called Living Biblically or something like that? Um, it's really terrible. <laughs> and what's so terrible about it is, is that it's complete and utter mockery of what Jesus is all about. Because it's acting like, well, if you literally try and perform all the things that the Bible says, then your life will look ridiculous and it's unlivable. But that's to completely miss Jesus' point. It's not about doing all the outward things. It's not about behavior modification. It's about being changed from the inside out. And this is what it is with forgiveness. That this requires more than just knowledge. It requires more than the right answers, more than knowing what you're supposed to do, and more than the right actions. It's more than just forcing yourself to know I'm going to do what's right even though I don't want to. That Jesus calls us to something higher. He calls us to forgive from the heart. And the only way to forgive from the heart is to have a heart that is filled with the grace and forgiveness of God. The only way to have that is to experience God's grace at a deep, deep level. We have to know God's grace, not just cognitively, but we have to know it the way a lover knows love. It's not enough to know the gospel. 
Like you can know all the facts that God created you for his glory and for your good. That, that um, you've turned away and you've lived for yourself and God created everything for you. Like you can know all the stuff that he did for you, that he gives you the very breath of life. And that, then he sent his son to come after you, though you weren't even looking for him. And he showed us the way, the truth, the life. He lived it for us so that we could know that we are loved, that we are sought after. And then he died to pay the debt that we could never pay, incalculable, unimaginable debt that we could never pay. He died for us that he gave more than we can fathom and then he rose from the dead to show us that he conquered all of that, that he's paid in full and that we can come be in relationship with God. Like we can know cognitively the gospel, the good news of all that, but it's not enough to know. You have to believe it. You have to ingest it. You have to be, Jesus' words, born again. We have to let it transform us. We have to revel in the beauty of God's love for us. We have to feast on his forgiveness of us. We have to sit in wonder and amazement at his goodness and his grace. We have to feel, not just know, but feel and believe to the core of our being that my life is in his hands, that I would be nothing without him, that everything I have and everything I am is of him. And only when we are changed by his beautiful presence only then can we possibly live a life of forgiveness. That the beginning of forgiveness, life-changing, world-changing forgiveness, is not the right answer. It's the worship of a God who's forgiven us. Like so many answers in the Bible and in life, it's not an intellectual answer. Like Job comes to ask God, like, why did all this happen to me? And what does God say? He shows him his presence. He says, who are you, old man? And Job's like, I get the answer now. That to be in the presence of God is the answer. It's the only satisfying answer. It's the only answer that will ever be enough. That will ever be better than revenge. It will, it's the only thing that's going to be more satisfying than living like Lamech. That in his presence and in his worship and in reveling in his goodness to us, we are transformed. And as a transformed people who know the grace of God, who love the grace of God, who wonder at it, who are forgiven, we will forgive from the heart. Let's pray and let's worship God. Father, I, uh, I pray right now that you would bring to mind the specific incidences. You would tap into those old wounds that we have right now, Lord, not to hurt us, not to bring it up, but that we could set them at your feet. I pray that we would see them in light of what you have done for us and who you are and what you've promised and your goodness to us. God, I pray that we would see them in light of your forgiveness of the debt you've paid on our behalf. God, I pray that you'd make us wonder and sit in awe at your grace and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.